0: studios in Dublin, welcome to Motherfucker, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words and words from Ireland. I'm Dara Gouche. I'm thrilled and overjoyed to be joined by a very special guest today. She is one half of Trump Press. She is a national treasure. I think she's great. Her name is Lisa Cohn.
2: Hello, thank you. That was a lovely introduction.
0: Oh well, you deserve it. Ah, oh, very kind. How are you getting on, Lisa?
2: Good. Um, I... I uh, was just saying before I, uh, we came on air that my baby was up most of the night, so me And if I'm if I make lots of errors and get everything wrong, including my own name, that'll be why. So I just want to get that disclaimer out
0: front. So you have a little yell on at the moment.
2: Oh, I do. I yell, and I was thinking of um, all the ways in which Irish comes back to you when you have a kid. Mm. So my mother is a native Irish speaker from Curnamona in Galway. She is the most beautiful Irish that she's self-conscious about and tried not to speak growing up. And then it became respectable again. And now she's like self-conscious that her Irish isn't good enough. Mm. She is very articulate in both languages, very witty person. Um, If you were to ask her straight out for a word, she won't know. And if you say, for instance, how do you spell that? She'll say... You don't <laughs> the old people didn't write those things down, you know, um, but when she's absent mindedly doing sums or whatever, then it'll be Oscar, mm-hmm. and I noticed this since um our Kelan came along that uh words will will come unbidden, so when he's given out and there's nothing actually wrong with him, I'll mm-hmm. say that's only gunil um, <laughs> and and uh, um when they stick their lower lip out mm-hmm. uh in that petulant way, it's um. Uh, Brelline. Brelline. Now, that's what we say in my family, but I looked it up in the dictionary and it's given as belline. So Mm. I don't know if that's a regional difference, but I know that Cornemona Irish is very... It's very specific, that there's real particular lingo to the village itself. Um,
0: so You yeah. see, you know, I think a lot of, because of a lot of our early dictionaries were compiled by priests who didn't have families or wives or, <laughs> or these things, they often overlooked some of these very important parts. I mean, you know yourself, these dictionaries were written by people who were never woken up at three in the morning by a Cologne. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. With a Berlin.
2: Yes. Oh, my God. He was being a masthine as well. <laughs> like he's, oh, he's mighty. But it's funny, like I found, um, I, I said to myself, I hope I'll speak Irish to him and I'll try and um, mm-hmm. use Irish. And um, I, I find, you know, when I'm changing him, I'll say, love and you know, that's mm. it, And, you know, if I ask him for a kiss, I'll ask for a pogueen, mm. which he still won't give me, by the way. He's oh. 13 months. <laughs> he's too busy. He wants to get into the bin knock the bin <laughs> over, pull things out of the bin and I hear my Auntie Mary's voice coming out of me and saying, I yowl mm-hmm. and uh, um, what else did we have? It was amazing to me. My my granny on my dad's side when we were little, she'd say a graw in a store mm-hmm. and I find those words bubbling up when when I'm asking them things like and yeah. it's um it's lovely that it's latent and then you know, it'll sort of bubble up. Yeah,
0: it's authentic, you know, like a patologin was what my mum used to say. What's that? Patologin, little pet, little darling pet. Ah, yeah.
2: oh, that's lovely. Yeah, I was thinking actually a lot of the words I know are for telling a child off.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> my granny would say not to make a hour of things. I meant to look that one up actually now and I didn't. I don't know what that means, but it's not a good thing.
0: No, balyáwer.
2: And um, I know mum would say the room was in a kija. Oh, And I said that word to somebody recently and they were like, no, that's you must have that wrong.
0: Oh, <sighs> was this person from the other side of the Ah, uh,
2: They were. They from were the indeed. <laughs> a, a kind person who uh, smiled sweetly and said, no, that can't be it. And I, I couldn't find it when I looked it up. But I asked my cousin Cormac, who is a proper guide goer, teaches in... Um, the Gaeltacht area in Connemara and he said Kidjuk is a mess like when things are piled on top of things like like hoarding I, I guess um, he told him, oh he loads of beautiful words actually um, he's, he's great like that
0: Ciddiach, yeah. um, because they say this, um, something was, was asking me is there a word in Irish for the the idea, that the concept of the chair as being clothes that aren't ready for the wash <laughs> but aren't actually aren't <laughs> completely clean and worn once they might be okay and they're on the chair I love good
2: that, yeah. Uh, yeah, raggedy and gobbles. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I was thinking that yeah, there's loads of man would say you look like a, st- a Streel or a mm-hmm. Um Oh, jeez, what was that word? She had a beautiful word one day when my sister came in. She was caught in the rain and she was very small. She was small and skinny and she had a big head. So when she got caught in the rain, she looked like, like a matchstick man or something. And my mother had a word... For how she looked, and it means like a small bird in a nest in the rain in a tree. Oh, Do you know, and I can't.
0: Oh, I know. It's, it's, it's like a word for a raw thing. And it's, it's, I think it's, it comes from the word for raw. It'll come back to me. I will come, I'll have that by the end of the episode. I mean, she
2: also used to call her spalabeg. Where's the spalabeg? Um, which I thought meant like the child, but a spala yeah. is like a, like a, like a piece of grit, like a chip, a yeah. little, you know, a little biting. Um, like a, <laughs> where's the, um, What's like a crumb or um what's the, morsel? Mm. <laughs> um, I, I love that one and I find that one that one po- pops up as well. Like where's the
0: spalabeg? bag? That's great. They're not so big. That reminds me, it's just, just when one of the ones that, one of the words that does come up. With that when people find again using Irish an is and what I love is biog means small, bioghane means a small kind of thing, and bioghane means small, small, small thing. Yeah, it's, it's adorable. It is.
2: Mm. Um, yeah, biog beech. Oh yeah, and more milte. Yeah, I remember those as well.
0: Those are great. Yeah,
2: it's it's fab, isn't it? It's it's nice um, that opportunity to revisit it. I think, it isn't it? It's
0: funny. It's it. funny how I guess. Yeah, the, I guess you and I were always thinking about language and either our work or and then having having small people drag dragging out our dragging on our knees.
2: Yeah. Mm. Um. And yeah, it, it's funny. I think being sleep deprived and tired all the time. Um, you worry that you're losing your language but it just means you're articulate in different ways you know and sometimes a well-placed uh, yeah. growl goes a long way you know
0: absolutely <laughs> yeah, you can't just be <laughs> you can't just be poor in poetry people all the time you know it's <laughs> a, a point and a grunt and an, an, an or an appropriately shaped eyebrow
2: yeah <laughs> so,
0: so one of the things i was really hoping to talk to you to at least i, I was here um, as well as talking a little bit about Trump Press itself, I want to talk about the, and we're looking now, we're, we're coming to the end of this mysterious decade, the 10s, wondering what it all meant. And I've spoken to Lisa Nick and have recently, another Lisa, about the Ireland's relationship with Europe over this decade now it's changed. And one of the things that's been, we've had a great decade for books, Irish books, mm-hmm. books in, from, in, English language books and Irish language books in in the past 10 years but there's a there's some recurring themes and we're going to get into that but first of all I want to talk about how how Trump Press got started.
2: Right so um 2012 Sarah Davis Goff and I were working in Dublin um we had both worked in publishing in different uh like sh- she'd worked for Continuum in New York she'd worked in Penguin she worked in the Lilliput Press I'd worked in Hot Press magazine for a mm. bit I had done a lot of freelance editing um I had done some work on academic books and stuff. So we'd both a fair bit of experience and post-grad educations. And we were both in temporary work in publishing. And I remember thinking, oh, God, I have to go on the job hunt and compete with this woman. <laughs> yeah. She's really impressive. She's very energetic. She's really clever. She's full of great ideas. I mean, I thought if I have to go and do a job interview and I see her in the waiting room and I'm just going home, you know. um, Not that anybody was getting called for any jobs. There weren't any. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she and I were both working in the Lilliput Press, a small independent in Dublin. And... um. One day, somebody came in to interview for the the internship position that I was in. And I was saying, oh, I'm really bummed out. Um, uh, one of us said, when we have our own publishing company, let's make sure there's a different door that interviewees come through so that you're not bummed out by you know bringing in your own replacement. Yeah. Now, we're not sure which one of us said that, but it started this whole conversation of, if we had our own publishing company, you know, what would you do? Okay. So we both thought at the time... Uh, because of the recession, um, that publishing had become very conservative. Mm. Um, we and I'm sure you've seen this. Publishing goes through a crisis every 25 years or so. Something happens. The end of the circulating libraries. Um, the um, introduction of the Penguin paperbacks was going to kill the industry. Yeah. The end of the netbook agreement in the 90s, um, which actually did. did a, a, it's why books are so cheap in Tesco and why publishers are making less money and. Yeah um then ebooks came along and that was going to ruin the industry so there's always something that's going to ruin the industry but it just reinvents itself and emerges different differently each time um we were looking at um post celtic tiger kind of gap in really exciting work we were both confident that the work was there but for some reason the platform was not yeah. um mm. bigger publishing companies no disrespect to them but um say in the UK companies were firing editors and just trimming down margins as much as they could making very conservative choices look twilight sold well let's keep publishing twilightish yeah. books and stuff and uh, we weren't seeing anybody writing about Ghost Estates or whatever. Um, But we were seeing in the slush pile a lot of people trying to write like John McGahern, let's say. this sense of this is the kind of manuscript I think people want and this is what I'll I'll try. So we saw very adventurous, interesting stuff not being published and generally the consensus was yes, this is great, but it's not going to make any money and we need to go for something more commercial. And then what would happen is you might publish something assuming it'll make money and then it wouldn't and mm. then you would just have this dud on your list. So we said publishers should publish something that's really great and truly deserves to exist and get behind it. Publish fewer books so that they have the energy to get behind those books. Um, so let's say only do three a year rather than 20 thrown at the wall to see what will stick. Yeah, And... um So we were saying, you know, be realistic, um, get funding up front, get arts funding and say this book deserves to exist because it is brilliant, it is a brilliant piece of work. That's the success. And Mm. if the book doesn't happen to make back in sales what it cost to make the book, that's not a failure. That's just that the market doesn't happen to support this kind of work. But, you know, realistically... Um it, it doesn't anymore. It kind of never did. And I here's a story I keep telling people. When Yates won the Nobel Prize, when, yeah. he, when he got that phone call, uh, he and his wife wanted to celebrate with a bottle of wine, but they didn't have any. They cooked up some sausages. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the first thing he said was, how much? Like, yeah, he was skint, you know, and people have never really made money. But when people do make a lot of money, that's the story. Right. Yeah. Um, so we essentially started the company for two reasons. One, this highfalutin manifesto about what uh, literary publishing could look like if you were small and agile and Mm -hmm. you don't invest, you you don't have big capital investments like an office and staff and whatever, if you're nimble and smart and small. And the other thing was we had no jobs and nobody was going to hire us, so we might as well do something. So um, uh, it it was kind of, um, let's do something a bit upstartish and underdogish. So Mm. we called the company Tramp after... Tramp from John Millington Sings. Oh. Eric, do you know this?
0: i had I, I, I heard this before, but I suppose I'd heard, I heard you had another name in mind before you settled on Tramp.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sarah suggested Growler. Uh, mm-hmm. so we, we, we were, that, was, that was the front runner for a while. Uh, we liked Tramp because it's uh, outsider-ish, right? Mm-hmm. So Sing, I'd be a big fan of Sing now. My, my grad work was on um, the Abbey Theatre's international tours and stuff, and I'm very interested in the National Theatre. My
0: Rath Farnham homie Sing. <laughs> yeah yeah. I, I, and out of all the literary figures of that period he seems to be the least dickheaded
2: I think so yeah mm. apparently when he was dying in the nursing home in Wicklow in the 30s he was talking to the nurses about feminism and stuff mm. you know and I think when you I think his work stands up still yeah um, you know I think when we revisit Yeats you know he uh, you
0: know yeah yates came up in, in our live show recently in relation to his um, we were we were listening at the various kind of uh, indignities he put his um, gone through and her family through yeah. including her husband who, you know I mean you know he he, he you know, seems to have spread rumors about her uh, about the husband which were which don't seem to be very substantiated proposing to the daughter after being rejected by the mother is a is a weird move yeah, 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 yeah. It's a yeah. weird I mean,
2: move. Like, who did, who, he, he's kind of an incel, right? I <laughs> uh,
0: He's the Ross Geller of the literary revival.
2: Oh, yeah, that's a good <laughs> one. And also, like, he probably died at the right time because mm-hmm. his politics were starting to veer off. The he's about writing. to get cancelled. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but uh, he, um, he hid behind that line, players and painted stage took all my love, not the things they're emblems of. That's a bit of a disclaimer or... It can be it can be read both ways, which is one of the nice things about it. a good poem. I mean, but it's uh, and he's basically saying, yeah, look, no, I, just, I was mad at the uniforms. I'm like Hugo Boss. It wasn't interesting what was in the oh. uniforms.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't buy that for a second. Yeah, not, yeah, having yeah.
0: Um, not having it, not having it. But yeah, yeah. but Singh now different car.
2: Singh, you know, went to Yeats. I want to be a great artist, and Yeats famously said, "Go west, young man." Ye- uh, Singh went to the Iron Islands, learned Irish, documented the life that he saw there. Yes, problematic. You know, he was trying to document a life that was moving on, uh, and by being there and documenting it, he was part of the change. Like he said, for instance, the way people record time, you know, based on the wind and the light and so on, uh, is interesting. He but he gave people like. A clock and um, mm. he took photographs and in the beginning he had these candid photos and you know later on then you had um, people like there's a story of him being frustrated because this little kid said let me brush my hair first or something yeah. Yeah. so he's like he, he's affecting change um, as well but um He had in, for anybody not familiar with his plays, so the Playboy of the Western World or The Shadow of the Glen, he would have a tramp-like figure who would enter into a stale patriarchy and um, be a catalyst for change. And um, uh, I love In the Shadow of the Glen when um, he, you think that the, the woman of the house in the end, you know, will be vindicated or will get back with her husband or mm-hmm. whatever. the fact that she goes off out to go live in a ditch mm-hmm. and have spiders on her, whatever the line is, you know, that she she looks to him and says, you have a fine bit of talk, stranger, and it's like, yourself, I'll go. <laughs> um, that's extraordinary. It's yeah. extraordinary. Um, and like, we don't think about it now, but at the time, naturalism in theatre was an avant-garde thing to do. So we're talking early 20th century. like But, mm-hmm. um, he he had this figure this tramp figure who was often i think a proxy for the artist um and it's kind of the Irish equivalent of the cowboy, you know, yeah. I- in a movie, or uh, Mary Poppins, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so we liked that idea of the outsider, you know, stepping in and shaking things up. So we had this idea we we're going to be like these uh, outlaws, but
0: in a world of startups, you're an upstart.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and we we're like, oh, we're the underdogs, whatever. And of course, everybody was incredibly kind and supportive, and th- it sort of dashed the underdog narrative, you mm-hmm. know. Because, I don't know.
0: <laughs> it would have been easier if they are you, you two chicks are never going anywhere.
2: <laughs> we'll show you Sunday Times. This is what you get for pulling us on the front page. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, like the Irish hmm. media is actually brilliant. If you're organised hmm. and you get your stuff out in time, they will find space for you. And um, there is that sense of all books are, are are newsworthy and worth being discussed. So we were very lucky. I think the timing was good. People wanted a, a good story as well. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the story behind the name. And um, that w- so we officially launched in 2014. We spent all of 2013 getting our ducks in a row. And uh, so we launched with Flight by Una Frawley. And then, I mean, we published Sarah Baum, Mike McCormick, um, Ian Mullaney, uh, Emily Pine. Um, and I'm, I'm leaving out a million people, but uh, we're, mm. we're at the moment we are on our 18th Book it just went to press yesterday, so um, it turned into a real job mm. really quickly.
0: <laughs> That's the funny thing about these things that suddenly you find suddenly you find it's actually work. It's, it, it, it takes it it goes from being this idea to actually being something you do every day.
1: Yeah, it's wild. Um, mm. We're really lucky. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Forrest Nguelga, who are celebrating twenty years of promoting the Irish language. in fós. Here is just one of the projects they do. First Gaeilge supports the Irish language dictionaries and on An Bonakharnoshun Thethermiuk the Gaeilge, the National Terminology Database. On the folklore.ie website, you'll find a modern English-Irish dictionary that's easy to search and easy to use, with example sentences and pronunciation assistance. The offline app helps you keep a record of your favourite words. Chonglin.ie, that's T-E-A-N-G-L-A-N-N, Combines the three major legacy Irish dictionaries in a searchable and user friendly interface. Audio pronunciations in the three major kanunthi. Thousands of grammar files are included on both websites to help you through the Thishalginneduk and the Mokani look. Wondering what the Irish for selfie is? Download the Folklore Dalai app for free now to find out.
0: Forest Nagelga, celebrating 20 years. You see, our Janga it's our language. As well as having a, a remarkable Midas touch for finding uh, Overlooked and uh, New Writers, you also have brought some forgotten texts back.
2: Yeah, I might talk about one right now, actually. Do. So we do a series called Recovered Voices. And one of the things we said, when we sat down, what, what do we want to publish? You know, great books that deserve to be out there um, and so on. And um we said, you know, there's a lot of great books already out there that for some reason have just dropped off the radar. And Mm. it's not always that it's um, a conspiracy or, you know, the patriarchy did it, although usually the patriarchy did it. (laughs) Um, But sometimes a book is really successful and then you stop hearing about it. And then when nobody is revisiting it and and talking about it, it, it just, it's as though it never existed. Maeve Kelly's Orange Horses is one such It was published in 1990 originally and um, Heather Ingman taught this in Trinity on um, a seminar I was in um, for my master's and um, this is one of those books. I think if you were to teach Irish writing uh, in a university course and if you had Dubliners by James Joyce, you would have to have this on the other end of the reading list Mm -hmm. um, where Dubliners is, you know, epiphany and paralysis and Dublin, whatever. This is short stories about marginalised Irish women in different circumstances and it takes on a variety of forms. Um, David Collard from the Times Literary Supplement called... Maeve Kelly, the Irish Flannery O'Connor. Wow. Um, they're really extraordinary stories. She was amazing. She, she is amazing. She, mm-hmm. uh, her career, um, she was a student nurse in London for a bit, came back to Ireland, worked a uh, farm in Clare with her husband. She was instrumental in setting up a refuge for uh, uh, for abused women in Limerick oh. in 1975. There was nothing at the time. If you were escaping from a violent uh, home, you just had to walk the streets. And she was one of the people who was involved in setting up um, charitable resources and stuff. Just very, very active. Um,
0: that, yeah, that, that's yeah. remarkable.
2: Incredible woman. Incredibly talented. She's also a poet. She's also published by House. Um and like, I just wanted to read something. I was just thinking about when you said to me, let's talk about culturey voices. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking, um, "Morning at My Window. There's just a page I was, um, that I absolutely love of this story. So for context, the T.S. Eliot poem, "Morning at the Window, is what she's talking about. There's a line in it uh, where Eliot says, I'm aware of the damp souls of housemaids sprouting despondently at area gates. Right. Um, So, okay. so this is a student nurse narrator. This is the beginning. Here it goes. Mr. Elliot was aware of the damp souls of housemaids sprouting despondently at area gates. What a pity, said I to myself, that he was not aware of the damp souls of student nurses drenched in despondency, drowned in their own misery and asphyxiated by the sadness of others. I shall soon have no soul left, or if I have, it'll be so narrowed and cicatrized by the scarifying experiences of my days that it'll not be worth a passing thought, a line of doggerel or a verse from a poem. We used to chant at school a cruelly unimaginative introduction to the native tongue, which still echoes down the hallowed, hollowed halls of my memory. I just adore succinct prose. I cannot abide adjective slinging writers. Where was I in my succinct prose? The Gaelic chant it went like this era the I arise at eight o'clock each morning. Mind the ch's. Catch it at the back of your throat. Niam ma'ai august malava. I wash my face and hands. er muhid edi. I put on my clothes. And for some reason, every morning when I stagger out of bed and splash my eyes open with the water on the rocks shared by my sister lamplighters, I think of that plain chant. And it isn't iron that enters my damp but narrowing soul. It's gall and wormwood, vinegar and bitter aloes and the taste of bile in my mouth regurgitating therefrom. Oh, soul, hold tight to yourself now or the little bit of you that's left and clothe your body with clean uniform, white starched apron, clean collars and cuffs, white starched cap. Clothe your face also with a smile for it's all you're allowed. Five minutes to dress, five to tear across the windy grounds to the main block and five to gulp a cup of tea and soggy toast. And a few aspirations on the way up the stairs for the lift is either on its way up or down or sunk in between with some frenzied prisoners crying faintly for help. And it's a quarter past seven and I'm just in time to report tonight, nurse. Good morning, nurse. Smile. Did you have a quiet night? Smile. Bleak response from the pallid face. Oh, have you a damp soul too, sister in distress? Or is it 12 hours of caring for 30 ailing bodies all by yourself too much for you, you frail creature, you weaker sex? Pull yourself together, prop up your sagging chin with a smile and deliver your report. Did I ever tell you the story of the Begandon student nurse who had a Celtic flair for words? The first night she wrote, in graphic but succinct, of course, prose, Mm. Mrs. X is sinking. Next night, Mrs. X is sinking fast. Next night, she is sunk. Anyone sunk tonight, nurse? You're 20 years old, nurse, 20 whole years. How many boats have you rocked to sleep? How many life rafts thrown? How many Mrs. X's have sunk before your eyes?
0: Wow. (laughs) That's outstanding.
2: I could actually just keep going. It's so brilliant. I think, like, if, if I packaged that up now and said this is the latest from Emer McBride I think everybody would believe me
0: I think they I think they would Mm. that's just uh, extraordinary and just and powerfully read too this is one of the things that uh, one of the trends I noticed that during the recession uh, economically Ireland kind of curled in to becoming this thing which has been an ongoing problem the the Dublin city-state of the Republic and how basically the, the outer counties are being turned into into almost a commuter belt, or kind of just did almost something to feed this city that a, a dysfunctional and, and deeply imperfect city. But as Dublin's kind of a shadow was spreading across, it seems more regional voices in literature became kind of louder, clearer, and more audacious.
2: I yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it's maddening. I think with the cultural revival. We had emerging voices like saying, great, but also we had, you know, that kind of twee idea of the noble peasant, yeah. you know, working the fields or whatever. And I think that there's that kind of ridiculous protective idea, you know, I'm from a, a small village in rural Mayo hmm. and there is not an awful lot. The, the nearest ATM is 17 miles away, let's say, right?
0: She's was a barefoot.
2: Um, no, but I tell you what, there is a mart in Ballinrobe, right? And my dad was telling me this. He used to walk. Um, he isn't not an elderly man, but when he was little, he and my grandfather would would like you know you'd you'd walk the cattle to the mart. Yeah, it's only like I said, it's only seventeen miles. Um, the there's a corner on the way into the town, and it's co- it's colloquially called Shoe Corner, because it was where the previous generation, if they walked into the town, would stop and put their shoes on before going into the town because you know shoes would cut your feet up and you want to keep them all nice and fresh and clean and whatever so you'd walk barefoot till you got to shoe corner pop the shoes on so when my dad was teaching me to drive he'd be like pull in here now to shoe corner and we'll do a hill start or you know whatever Mm. but um now to be clear my dad wore shoes okay (laughs) (laughs) does still but um we it's a very picturesque and beautiful area Mm -hmm. and there are people who own homes in the area in the wider area That every now and then, if somebody, you know, puts up planning permission to build a house, somebody who doesn't live there most of the year will come and object that it's spoiling the natural beauty of the area. Yeah. And that absolutely boils my blood. That, look, this is where I want to come. I want it to be rural and unspoiled. So the last thing I want is a three-bedroom house for a young family, ruining my view of the lake. Yeah. You know, now I do, I'm sympathetic that we don't want McMansions ruining people's views of the lake, but Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I think that sort of everything looks toward Dublin and sometimes I feel like we are the backdrop mm. um, and that happened too in literature that um, there's a sense of Irish literature is um, rural when, when it's good you know it's um, it's about a silent angry father maybe yeah. it's about immigrants and a secret you know it's, a, it's somebody on a stage doing a big speech about a terrible secret <laughs> um, and like my my uh, my grad research was on um, kind of that with the Abbey Theatre when they would try and tour plays and stuff that if it wasn't set in a cottage with somebody with the, the bin all gone and all that um, that it would be sort of, there'd be pushback against it. Like, l- look at you're Irish, you have to tell this type of a story. It has to be rural and there has to be an innate charm. And mm-hmm. um, I think a great example of um, somebody sitting between the two stools with that is Brian Friel's Dancing at Lunasa. Yeah. Because that's a play that seems to present a beautiful, quaint family and um, it's it's bittersweet and so on. But actually, you know, he's he's picking at the idea of the unreliability of memory. Yeah. But you could go and see that play and enjoy it and think you're seeing a quaint Irish play and not necessarily get yeah. in offended by it. Anyway, all that said, um, what happened with publishing when everybody suddenly got terrified they were going to lose their jobs. It was that if anybody was going to publish an Irish book it was going to be something that looked like John McAhern. Yeah. How do you market a uh, a book to people if it's not set on a farm you know so for instance our first novel was Flight by Una Frawley she had already sent that out on Sub um, years before we set the company up um, and in London people were reading it going this is very good I really like it it's very interesting it's um, four different characters in Dublin and um, But um, one of the main characters is black and uh, she was advised maybe get rid of the black character. People, you know, it'd be hard to sell if if it's an Irish book. Also, it's set in the suburbs. That's a bit confusing. Um, The father of the family talks and he's educated. (laughs) And like, honest to God, this is the kind of feedback she was getting. But she Mm -hmm. was she was writing the book out of a response to the citizenship referendum in two thousand. Four was yeah. It? it was the
0: same year as it, the citizenship referendum was brought in, right before EU enlargement. Because the idea was that you know, like we were, oh, yeah. we were one of the only countries in Europe that that actually had, uh, had birth citizenship, and we were going to be one of the only ones giving full access to new to ascendancy states, and that that was the moral panic that kind of uh, kicked that in.
2: Yeah, that was ridiculous. You remember how crazy? I, I, for me, that was. I suppose it, it never occurred to me that like we were all so racist because we never really were confronted with the opportunity to be racist till then. You know, this is the
0: funny thing. I think on one level, I think that referendum wouldn't have passed if we ran it the way we ran the if, if we if we had a citizenship convention and with with, with a very evidence based approach and a patient, if we ran it the way we run referendums now, wouldn't have happened. But what I do remember is in 1997, I was working in Dingle. And I was working in, and there was a, a, I was working with a barman from South Africa called Elton, a white South African guy. And the a song came on the radio. I think it was something inside so strong, or one of the apartheid era kind oh, of yeah. um, feel good songs. And then someone's like, "Ah, Elton, ah, that's about you and your pals, huh? You know, you should, you should be more like us and and sound and you know." And he's like, "What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, um, Irish people are much more racist than South Africans." And I was like, "That's <laughs> you've ever heard thing single apartheid?" And he's like, just see <laughs> he white. Once people from different cultures start coming here, you're going to realise exactly how racist you are. You'll be astonished at how quickly it happens. And I was like, no, right, we should have listened to Elton.
2: We should have listened to Elton, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we and we really made a holy show of ourselves, didn't we, over that referendum? And that was something Una wanted to sort of mm-hmm. respond to in her writing. Um, and that's what a great writer would do. And you know, it's a beautifully written literary novel, and it's about—it's a very Irish novel. It's about yeah. a family. It's about travel, uh, emigration, coming home, not knowing where you belong. Yeah. Um, there is a a crisis pregnancy. It's actually got all the ingredients. But generally, you know, she was told, "Look, at, if it's not set on a farm." You know, it's, it's too hard to sell. Sorry. Yeah. So she, in fairness to her, put it in a drawer. She didn't make any of those changes that were suggested, which is which is great. And um, then when it came to us, we said, "Well, this is perfect." You know, to launch with. Um, similarly, Sarah Baum's um, "Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither" is about a man and a dog, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it, so we found that we would publish these books and do them in the way that we said that you know we'll do only three or four books a year we'll really get behind them we'll really push them and then hopefully we'll build a brand so that when we publish an author that nobody's heard of they'll say oh well you know these guys published Mike McCormack or whatever Uh we can we can trust it so um like yeah, and we weren't working out of a vacuum. We certainly were were benefiting from all the work that Declan Mead did in the Stinging Fly. Yes, for the past sixteen, seventeen years, I guess Stinging Fly. So Declan's been publishing amazing writers. Like he was the first person to publish Kevin Barry. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a weird Irish voice. A yes, very distinctly rural one. Um, and by putting those voices out there, um, you know, Declan was was creating more space for everyone. And I think the more you you know you publish stuff the more people see the possibility. Um, somebody reads Kevin Barry and thinks, well, I can, I, I, I thought I had to write like John McGarren, maybe I can write mm-hmm. like myself. And so that that creates that opportunity. Um, Lisa McInerney, there is a, a brilliant Irish voice, um, yes. you know, set in Cork mostly. Um, and I think, I think social media has been really important here. She had a blog and it yeah. was on the basis of that that her career took off. I, I don't know, had she gone out on conventional kind of, you know, trying to get signed and stuff, if how that would have worked out. So, something definitely happened though around the beginning of this decade that I think Donald Ryan might be the big one. Um, mm-hmm. Famously, Donald's manuscript was languishing in the slush pile in Lilliput Press, and Sarah found it and yeah. uh, got everybody to read it and badgered the shit out of everybody to publish it. And, um, I remember starting in Lilliput when they were working on that. And I think I think I started around the time they were like doing Donald's press shots, which I sometimes see yeah. to this day. And Sarah was like, we're going to publish this book called The Spinning Heart. It's brilliant. You have to read it. I'm going to send you the PDF. Like, he was just another author about to be published at the time. Mm. And she was treating him like a rock star. And I was like, oh, you must be, are you friends or something? Nope. Mm. Didn't know the guy. She was just hair on fire about this guy. And then he took off. And now it's really easy to be like, obviously Donald Ryan's brilliant. Um Sarah's got crazy eye for stuff like that. She's just really, really good when she when she fixates on a writer, she's never wrong. You know? <laughs> um and I think he was one of the first writers to write about contemporary Ireland. Um and the spinning heart deals with a ghost estate, the collapse of the construction industry, people discovering that they don't have, you know, social insurance like they thought they had, and mm-hmm. so on. Um, and I think people then started looking to Donald Ryan as an example of how they could write. Um, yeah. So we, we do get a lot of would-be Donald Ryans in the slush pile now.
0: Oh um, bet.
2: Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I think everybody, all those voices coming up at that same time started a wave. Um. I hope it's a wave. I hope it's not a bubble. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a bubble, it's got to burst. But um, yeah, I think that's, that's something we just happen to be a part of at the same time.
0: It certainly is. I think that like a lot. Of, it's great to hear about, about the fact these people can be found because people like yourself are taking risks. And you know, maybe we don't hear enough about the the risk takers behind the scenes publishing. There's a we still get the idea of you know the idea of writers as being you know um, as being kind of a complete solo act who so just arrive and maybe the suits. The suits and the publishing company just tried to stop them from being brilliant as opposed to actually kind of helping them along and showing them away. Oh, like
2: I, we saw this thing recently <clears throat> in the press about Notes to Self by Emily Pine, um, the British edition of it. Um, oh, there was a review that said, um, The word of mouth success from Ireland, la 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 la. Um, yes, it was a word of mouth success. The word of mouth, because of a very complex campaign that took a lot of energy and a lot of money and we threw a lot behind that campaign and it was a huge success. Now, obviously, Emily's writing is brilliant and anybody yes. with any sense would read it and say this is great and share it with everyone. Um, it was just really f***ing annoying. I think had it been the other way around, it would have been like Canongate's successful or Hamish Ham or whoever. It's just when a book takes off in Ireland, people say, what is this grassroots, you know, spontaneous success that this thing had? There's never mm. any trust that there's... Um, a sleeper
0: hit. The idea, God forbid, we might actually work things and do things deliberately.
2: Yeah, like we have things like we send out galleys and we have schedules and we actually do things differently from a lot of publishers here. Now, I think things are changing, but it wasn't always the case that you could get a printed galley from yeah. a publisher here, for instance. And we have press releases and we Have um, we meet with the trade? We go around to bookshops. There's a lot of work, an awful lot of work that goes into it. It's not like the books just sort of land in the warehouse, and we hope for the best, you know. Um, And I I do think like the the media can be dismissive. It has a rough idea of how publishing works and doesn't quite always grasp it. Now in Ireland, it's you know people have a more nuanced understanding because it's a small place, so Mm. um, you need you don't get those kind of um broad strokes <laughs> that's
0: for sure so one of the things obviously um, in the 2010s uh, the internet social media was, it became a very big thing one of the un, maybe one of the parts of social media that hasn't really been discussed about has been suddenly men suddenly became privy to start, started seeing conversations that women were having in private for centuries mm-hmm. and some of them just flipped out so you got the reply guys, the yes buts, the well actuallys, the balance boys, the fair trial, the not convicted of anything. And this may be something that was also happening in literature, the idea that there was very private conversations were finding their ways into books. And think of Louise O'Neill and Emily Pine and as well, mm-hmm. but just the idea that as well as having regional voices, and one of the great things was the, was very kind of a outspoken female voices in the 2010s in Irish literature.
2: Absolutely. And we, Sarah and I, Definitely saw this in publishing in other areas that um publishing a woman was a niche thing, yeah so we found, for instance, again, with flight uh, when we were publishing that um somebody smart and well intentioned said to us, you know this has got a lot of women in it it's you know it's <laughs> like um it, it hadn't occurred to us like f- so there's four main characters, three of whom are women, yeah, and we just sort of thought of them as the four main characters um but speaking to say people who've been in the industry a little longer and might be more uh, representative of publishing, let's say, mm-hmm. generally people go, "That's a, quite a womany book," you know. <laughs> are, are, and we tend to um, publish kind of fifty-fifty men and women. Yeah. Um, we are working all the time on trying to represent uh, more diversity. Um, in, in our publishing, and we can everybody can always improve on that, and we certainly want to. But uh, we're, we're pretty good on the gender divide, I think, and because we publish, you know as many women as men, people tend to say to us, so you're a women only publisher? You only publish, and mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a, that thing people say when, when a man walks into a room and sees as many men as women, they assume there are more women than, yeah. than men. So we, we found that, a bit of pushback like that. Um, we definitely saw that in publishing, there was a sort of women's writing as a genre in itself. Um, and that was something that we had to push against. We, do actively try to, um, help, uh, help readers see women as, you know, not a niche subject matter, but, you know, writers like anyone else. So for instance, uh, we don't have, um, covers with, you know, the, uh, the tree, sunset, your girl's shoes, yeah. or, um, we don't tend. Tempt- cartoon
0: woman on the phone with the shopping bag
2: yeah uh, or the um the author photo in the back uh, isn't you know, necessarily a smiling woman. um because when a man writes a serious book, you don't get a smiling. Photograph of the man, right? So we do. They should like
0: smile. It. Why don't they smile more?
2: That's what I said. You know, people like you more if you smile, and you could look so pretty. But, I just,
0: I, mean, I, I know because, like, obviously, I, 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 I'm smiling in my authorial picture, and I think you know it's like if you're not smiling, I think, and something to do.
2: You are. I forgot that you do, and that was something I meant to compliment you on because more men need to smile in their author picture so that more women don't have to, and then it stops being a thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: good for you. You're leading the charge.
0: It's good now. I suppose part of it was because my wife was taking the photograph and yeah you know, and she yeah just yeah she's gonna give me a look but I think I think sometimes you see this online that when you if you're in an argument and sometimes people think you know if you um if you got a, a grumpy face in your kind of profile picture and you say something that that's a joke it's more or less likely to be construed as a joke if you're grumpy and then I just think the I mean I'm like I I, I don't I think the idea that you know that the, the author the serious author he's too serious to shave yeah. But, and uh, he, can't, he can't be smiling, and uh, it's just a bit. Um, I, I find it a little bit huffy, and I just wanted to break that. I wanted people to think you know, it's it is a book about Irish, and it's a book about my best stuff about childhood and Ireland and memory, and then my father, and particularly especially crack baby about you know disability. I just didn't want it to. I want to say yes, you know, it's this this it's okay to smile, you know, through these things. Smiling is important.
2: It is. I was in um, Hodges looking in Hodges Vegas looking at some Irish books. um And I picked up a couple that looked really interesting and flicked through the pages and saw this terrible typeface, uh, and I and I I started having this Pavlovian reaction to mm. it, and I realised that a lot of books were you know not terribly well published, and and maybe people couldn't afford typesetting, and it's fiddly with the fathers yeah. and all that. And there's a particular typeface that people use that just it repels me. My eyes slide off the page. I want mm. to put the book away and run out the door. And I think you know when you use nice typesetting and a friendly author photo, people say this I'm welcome here. This is yeah. You know. I, it's not unlike the approach we're taking with how we publish in that we say yes the work is ambitious and takes risks but it is not going to alienate you by how clever it is you're not going to feel like an idiot you mm. are welcome you're a part of this we we think that you are up to this challenge and you will prove us right and um, that's uh, been borne out I've got to say
0: I think so I guess um, so the 2020s are going up the roaring 20s what does Trump Press have in mind?
2: Well and we'll have to be back to you next year because we have got Something Irish language related, at
0: last. Fantastic.
2: I've been on the lookout for something Irish language related. Um, mm. We have a book coming out. Um, oh, I can tell you about Yeah, of course. This. Okay. Did you ever read Queen of Archulera in school?
0: Did I ever? It's fricking awesome. <laughs>
2: um, so sure my
0: son is par- partly named after it. <gasps> oh,
2: of course he is. Mm-hmm.
0: Him and, and Art Spiegelman as well.
2: Oh, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Artine Beg. Artine Beg. Um on luck <laughs> 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 um, so uh Grifa, a very accomplished poet mm-hmm. a member of ana, winner of many awards, has written a prose book, uh, her first um and it's about how she was a bit obsessed with the poem uh, the lament for Art O'Leary for anybody who doesn't know it, I would absolutely google it it's really metal, mm-hmm. really exciting it is horse gallops to the door woman hops on the horse brings her to her dead husband he's been shot by the dreaded Brits and she falls to her knees drinks his blood in handfuls and composes an epic poem about her love for him and how sexy he was and how intertwined they were and it's fresh and exciting and um, it, so this is 18th century yeah. and and um, Dieran got really interested in this poem and she as a poet encounters this this other woman who is a poet Yeah, uh, and it kind of makes her think about her own writing process and what she's trying to achieve. She becomes obsessed with Eileen Neil, who wrote it because we know her through the men in her life. We know yeah. her about, you know, because she's married to art. We know that she was Daniel O'Connell's auntie. Um, we can find evidence of her sons and grandsons' uh, lives but her the, the knowledge around her kind of drops off uh, in her later life so Darren becomes obsessed with tracking her down and finding her voice and sort of bringing it back she embarks on translating the poem as she goes as well and um so the question it's a bit of a detective story does Mm. she find her and and what happens along the way and I am very crude and I don't think Darren will appreciate my saying this but I've been telling people it's like Notes to Self meets Paul Dark Oh wow (laughs) It's beautiful it's Mm. uh, dramatic exciting you don't have to speak a word of Irish she talks about it but um, and she'll refer to stuff but everything's in English and she will talk um, about problems around Irish words in it um, and um, there's a few phrases to regalge, but um, context is explained and everything. So you could give this as a gift, but I think it is a thrilling, exciting book. And that's going to be early 2020.
0: We cannot wait. But Lisa, before we wrap up, um, can you tell us your favourite Irish word? Uh, Prashach. Prashach. Uh, yeah. Yes. The place is
2: always in a fing Prashach.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel
2: like there's an onomatopoeia there, you know, that um, uh, it's. it's uh, and I, I feel bad that all the words I come to express in Irish today are um, uh, words of exasperation. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the best language in which to be exasperated. And I'm happily mm-hmm. exasperated
0: in it. Also, sure, if we'd been left alone as an island, we wouldn't have any words for exasperation at all. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, um, I, th- I, I made a note of, of, I was trying to think of, um, mm. uh, oh, do you know what my other favourite word oh, yeah. is? Féhéjá. Féhéjá. It's like little fairies, like little creatures. Oh yes, Fadja. I love that word, but only how it's pronounced by my cousin Padder. He has the most beautiful voice. But yeah, that, yeah. Fantastic. That's it.
0: Excellent. Lisa Cohn, thank you so much for coming along today. And finally, one thing before we wrap up, there's going to be a lot of our listeners, uh, teenage girls who want to grow up to be Lisa Cohn. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have anything to say to them?
2: Uh, Read the books, read all the books and um, uh, do have arguments. Damn right. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Please go Thank you so much. Thank you. It's long from me. Slon. Catch you next time. Hey, Dark here. Thank you so much for listening today. We really appreciate it. We really, really appreciate you listening to us and your loyalty as our listeners. Uh, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, if you could rate us there and give us a little review. This feeds into their rating system, which feeds into which shows are featured on top, which ones are included and they're recommended for the listeners when they do it. It seems to be one of the most important parts of getting the show advanced to other listeners. So it would mean a lot. A little five-star review with, 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 with a little bit of words in it, with basically a little description of why you like the show. That is what we're going to send you to today. As well as that, you can contact us at org. Thanks a million to Kirsten Shield for doing the artwork. Thank you to Brian for producing. And thank you to Headstuff for making it all happen. We're going to catch you next Friday. Let's love. Kermil Malkov. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
2: Yeah, I heard that the first argument you have as a couple is the argument you will always have as a couple, <laughs> in one form or another. I, I ate a few glasses, all right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>